0: Hey, folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Pro's Almanac. Today, we've got a very unique episode. We're joined by Ben Brownlow from Fox Holler Almanac to discuss scything in a modern context. And unlike previous interview episodes, we're actually going to be pairing this with a really lengthy 101 Substack article, which we collaborated to put together. So when you're listening, if you find yourself really interested in learning more, or maybe you find yourself drawn to the way Ben explains scything, check out our Substack article on poorprolesalmanac.substack.com. You can also get there by going to poorproles.com and going to the supplemental reader section. It's broken out into two parts, so you can read one part, listen to the interview, read the second part. We go from broad strokes conversation to more in-depth detail along from part one to part two. So it's a good length of reading, and uh, it should definitely help answer a lot of questions. There's some video content integrated into the Substack article with some how-tos, some examples of what he's talking about. So it's a really great multimedia resource for somebody that's getting into scything for the first time. So I really hope you guys enjoy this interview. Go check out Ben's work on the links listed in the show notes, and tell us what you think. thanks so much for coming on. First, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your farm and your work.
1: Okay, yeah. So I've been sort of doing a a variety of things here on a community land trust for about 11 years, sort of an integration of tree crops, native habitat, and pasture livestock. So we have an agroforestry cooperative and a dairy cooperative that's kind of under the umbrella of, of a lot of my work. And we do some pastured pork and pastured poultry alongside that. Some some subsistence gardening and plant breeding. We've been working on breeding uh, perennial walking onions to have bigger bulbs, breeding squash and cowpeas. We're here in northeast Missouri, so those crops seem to do pretty well for us. The uh, land trust is 280 acres, about 100 of those acres is in the conservation reserve program in native warm season grasses. Mostly we've got some woodlands, we have some sites for human development and we have some agriculture sites that are separate from either that, that, you know, reserve space or that forested space. Also, I help to feed a uh, kitchen collective, and that's where a lot of the produce ends up going to. And so we have, you know, 12 adults and three kids kind of in an outdoor kitchen during the months when that is, you know, possible. Awesome. Now, for that trust, were
0: you involved in the development of it, or is this something you kind of walked into?
1: No, it's a, you know, it, it was a really great thing to not have to figure that out.
0: Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I think what you're doing is what a lot of people listening probably would love to do. So I guess before we even get into the siding content, I do want to pick a little bit at this because I know people probably want to hear about it. Tell me a little bit about like. You've you've got this land trust and you've got all these kind of peripheral organizations going on with it. What does that look like in the the day to day, like structurally, not like what you're doing, but like how does that actually function and like exist?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That it, it's it's very complicated, um, but it seems to work. It's been working for about twenty five years now. There is a uh, it's a five hundred one c three nonprofit that is sort of related to the community land trust. Um, it's you know, essentially functions as a, a board to oversee land use. And so, of the 280 acres here in Northeast Missouri, you know, the majority of it has been put aside for habitat restoration of native tall grass prairie. But we do have about 40 acres cut out of that for human development. And so, to be able to lease that space, a person becomes a member of the nonprofit agrees to uh, a handful of sort of covenants. It's almost like a, it can almost be looked at as like a homeowner's association, except our rules make a little bit more sense. So we're committed to sharing resources, organic production, habitat restoration, you know, radical recycling of resources and, and, and that type of thing. Those are sort of written into your lease. So we have a, you know, we have a land trust board that's composed of people who live here. We have a nonprofit board that's kind of a combination of people who live here and a few folks uh, outside of the community that sort of helps steer that. And then um, the actual among us who are here on the land are ourselves. You know, uh, we have a, a variety of organizations, different committees to handle anything from firewood acquisition on to conflict resolution on to what types of agricultural policies do we want to set up for folks coming in. And so it is it is sort of a um, a series of overlapping groups of people, and we do operate under consensus.
0: So you're basically living the dream is what you're saying.
1: Oh, it's such a, such a, <laughs> sometimes it's a nightmare. Um, it is a lot of work. It's just sort of ending up, um, I would say that... I, my goals coming into this project had a lot more to do with my relationship to land and uh, a lot more to do with how i wanted to relate to resources in the world and how i wanted to respond to all the sort of doom out there and i sort of found that resource sharing and communal living and shared decision making are tools in the toolkit to deal with that i didn't necessarily come here because i really wanted to live with other people I found that a necessary practice if we want to actually address some of these larger um, issues that we have. So, you know, um, as like an individual homesteader or homesteading family, um, maybe we could reduce our impact, you know, on the earth a little bit. But without that sort of cooperative step in the right direction... The reduction of impact is kind of minimal compared to the model that we're trying to build, and so, and so, in a large part, we're trying to build a model that can be, you know, learned from, you know, replicated to a certain degree. Uh, I also want to mention that, in terms of land use, we sort of cluster a lot of the housing and shared resources together in one sort of centralized area uh, so that we can have larger tracts of land for wildlife and habitat restoration that don't have as much human impact on them now there is a level of human impact in that we will burn our prairies sometimes to maintain healthy vegetation and we will go out and manage our woodlands a little bit and we do occasionally do some grazing and haying in those conservation areas in Drought type emergencies as we've had this year.
0: Yeah, I bet it's been a wild year, that's for sure. So they've been burning that prairie for a number of years. Then I'm guessing, like, are you guys on like a three or a five year cycle, something like that?
1: Roughly a three to five year cycle for most of our areas, and once it, we um, we're stepping that up a little bit to control lespediza. We've had an issue with Lespedeza here on the land. Um, our local NRCS office says the only way to deal with it is to spray it down. But of course we um, have a ecological covenant for organic practices. We're attempting to burn that a little bit more frequently to get that lespidiza under control. That sorta, you can't really do it every year because you won't develop enough thatch. Uh, you, there's not enough fuel in the field to burn, but you know, every other year we might be able to pull off depending on how quickly that thatch develops.
0: Yeah, I, I would be really interested to see how effective that is over the long term, because I would imagine that it would, given the way, historically speaking, the way FIRE has interacted with non natives here in North America, that it seems to be really effective. So I definitely would like to know in a couple of years how that's working out for
1: you. i uh, well.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now, this interview is a little bit different than what I've done in the past for listeners. We're doing something really fun. We're actually pairing this with a v- pair of Substack articles, part one and two, that we collaborated on, which you put a lot of the technical data into, which outlines a lot of the information on scything for folks that are new to, this, to the process or maybe they've read or tried a couple times and they've never really had any success or they did it once and they're like, my back hurts. I'm never doing that again, <laughs> even though I want to do it. And I'm one of those people. I, I've hurt my back. I hurt my back doing a lot of things. This is just one of them. So I get it. And I think it's really important to have an accessible resource that um, is not hierarchical in the way the content is delivered, the information is delivered, that it's a, we're all learning this together. And some of us are in different spots in that learning journey. And I don't think, when you you start going down these really esoteric, like, knowledge sources, you can end up in some really kind of culty spaces. So I think this is really important to like kind of offer this as an alternative. So first off, thank you for being involved and having s- such a significant input on in this. To get to the actual content, what got you into scything and, I guess, thinking about this need to have less of an impact and less of a negative impact on the landscape in general?
1: Yeah, well, so I would say that sort of my, my experience kind of growing up in a punk DIY space sort of prepared me for, for this, um, between dumpster diving, booking my own shows, fixing bicycles, I started examining resources in a different way. (laughs)
0: That's like the Boy Scout badges for punk kids. (laughs) Right. Which of these have you done yet? And which ones do you still need to do?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, I, I sort of, um, found that, that with gentle guidance and, and support from others that like I could teach myself skills. And um, as I sort of got a little bit more interested in ecology and, you know, uh, subsistence agriculture and aware of some doom in the world, um, found myself here in community. And I had a, a neighbor who kind of brought me into the fold for scything. He, um, Chad Knapp, um He's uh, no longer with us, but he often used to say, I'm in one of the top five you know, scythe mowers in North America, and, and I, think, I, I think I believe that. Um, um, but despite all that expertise, uh, he was always open to just sharing use of the tool and, and, and trying to get more people excited about it, because it was something that he was certainly really excited about. And so about 10 years back, he held just sort of a little workshop, come on out, bring a scythe. You know, if you got one and I'm going to teach you a few things, I showed up with kind of a a, a crappy old garage sale scythe. And he said, no, 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 that's not going to do. But it took a lot of time to help me make my own handle there that day and showed me some of the basics. And so... One of the things that, uh, you know, I recognize I'm really privileged about living in community is that I have a lot of live resources of people who have done this stuff, like whether or not you want it, sometimes if you're attempting a new skill here, you get an opinion on that. And um, I was very lucky to have a a handful of people around me that already sort of have this tool um, and and knew how to use it. Um, Chad really taught himself just kind of, I think he spent a lot of time with some archaic texts because he was learning this, this is (laughs) pre-YouTube, you know, a lot of this skill building. And so like, you know, I don't think that there is a really solid replacement for a mentor mentee type relationship with a, with a tool where a lot of the knowledge is sort of lost. But this document that, that, that I'm working on is sort of an attempt To give folks the basics, I've sort of found that, yeah, as you said, there's some higher level, esoteric, inaccessible info out there and there's, you know, sort of a, you know, and maybe sort of a hint of gatekeeping around that information. And then there is sort of the very brief introduction provided by folks that I'm not sure if they're actually using the tool or if they're like, Hey, this thing looks badass and it's going to get me some clicks. Uh, so I'm trying to find the middle ground of giving folks, uh, some actual useful information and, uh, you know, some direction kind of going to the right place. I think it is something that you can teach yourself and that takes time and it, and it takes patience and certainly don't want to lead anyone down the road of getting their back hurt in that process.
0: One of the things I've noticed on social media is people talking about like AI being used to write books. And uh, a friend of mine pointed me to the fact that a lot of foraging books are being written almost verbatim the same by yes. different authors all around the same time. And he's like, I think this is AI and I think they're trying to sell stuff. And like foraging is not something you can kind of AI automate, right? Right. Like s- slight differences and suddenly you're suggesting something that's poisonous is edible. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like th- there's some dangers there. I'll be really curious to see how like a lot of this esoteric kind of content gets picked up by AI as, "Hey, this is an underserved market. Let's like go through this compendium of information that exists from like ripping through or reading through like old texts that are PDF uploaded to some storage facility or whatever the fuck." <laughs> and they just kind of like translate it into some like half-assed un untru- you know meaningless textbook that's a 101 on like any of this kind of stuff and that's that's really frightening i feel like you're you're starting to go down this weird road of like you have to know your author <laughs> you know <laughs> right. what i mean yeah. um the way you might need to like i don't know i guess there's really no there's no like example of like when you would need to know the person behind something so it, it's like this really kind of scary idea that like Like people have historically written books that they didn't actually know. And foraging is like a really good example of that. Like, there are a lot of scientists and researchers or journalists that'll just be like, I'm going to go through other books and pull that information and make my own book and have never actually worked with the plant. And a lot of that information is maybe anecdotal or maybe not nuanced as it should be. And that's where you get into like a lot of trouble. And I could see that happening in Scything as well, because again, it's kind of like, who's going to fact check this because no one else knows it. So you put out your book and it like helps your image of being like the homesteader guy. And, you know, maybe it's a follow up to your first book that did pretty well. And you're like, writing is a lot easier than farming. So like, let me just keep pumping out books on shit I don't know about. (laughs) Hey, this is Andy from the Poor Prols Almanac letting you know about our Burr Oak acorn competition. We're looking for the biggest, most tannin-free acorns you got with a small prize attached to both the biggest, the most tannin-free and the best combined with naming rights as we propagate those selections to boot. For more information, visit poorprols.com and click on the Burr Oak competition bar. So with that diatribe in place, you did this mentor mentee type relationship like what did it look like to start thinking about trying to integrate scything into like actually managing a landscape
1: yeah yeah that, that that's a really great question for me um i think that when i sort of gained some proficiency with the tool and my body was younger i had this temptation to look at an acre field and say to myself, you know what, the the traditional measure of acre was how much a person could scythe in a day, and I'm gonna try that out. And usually find myself breaking down after about a half acre or so. Uh, and um, I kind of see, see it as a tool in the toolkit. We don't exclusively function with just scythes here. We do uh, take out a brush hog now and then. We will mow things with machines, you know we have a lot of land that we're managing, but it's sort of like finding out uh, where there's bottlenecks with those machines and seeing, uh, testing out if the scythe is more appropriate in those spaces. I would say that uh, a way to think of it, maybe there's a couple ways to think of it. It's like a scythe may not be as efficient as as a lawnmower or a tractor, time wise, but a scythe can be used efficient efficiently. You've got this kind of there's maybe a couple of gradients. One would be efficiency versus resiliency of the of the tool. And so, like on the efficient side of the scale, we we can use a different example, vegetable seed, okay? Hybrid vegetables. if you plant some hybrid tomatoes, you know they're going to make lots and lots of of big tomatoes all at once when you want them under ideal conditions. That's a very efficient way to grow that crop. You know you start planting some of these heirloom seeds and you'll notice that some of them do really well in a dry year some of them do better you know resist cracking or something in a wet year it may not get you to those high numbers under like perfect conditions but in adverse conditions they may do better than the hybrids i sort of in a way view the scythe as a tool that's more resilient than it is efficient it works great in wet grasses it works great in little spots and, you know, another thing is it is it is it puts our feet on the ground a little bit more. It's a contemplative sort of activity. It sort of brings you into your surroundings a little bit more. If you think about getting into the cab of a tractor and going out, like, you know, we'll go out and we've got these, some of these patches of that are getting pretty big and we'll try to mow them down before they go to seed. And yeah, you can cover a lot of ground in it, but the little individual plants that are out there in the middle of the the sward, they're you know driving all the way, you know driving a quarter mile away to hit six or seven plants in the the middle of a field starts to make a little bit less sense. But if you're walking out there, you start seeing all the little plants, you know, it it kind of it kind of brings us a little bit closer in. It, it's it's a relationship-building tool between a you know, a human and a landscape. There's a sort of a energy you know, an establishment energy versus a maintenance energy uh, sort of gradient to look at in terms of what tools we use to manage land as well. It may not be really easy to dig a pond with a shovel by yourself. That's something where you might want to use a fossil fuel machine to push that pond into place. In the long run, you know, we're kind of getting some benefits that are going to close some of our resource loops by having that pond on site. And so, you know, there are some factors there that you weigh. I'm going to put in energy ahead of time so that I can use less energy overall. I'm going to require resources for an infrastructure project, and then I won't require those resources much longer um, as a result of w- what I've built. The scythe is a tool that doesn't require a lot of maintenance energy. we are not fueling it up every time we need to use it other than eating breakfast or or whatever. And so, um, whereas a, a lawnmower or a weed whacker or any of those things, we got to put fuel into it every time we use it. And so, for a large space, no, a scythe doesn't necessarily make sense all the time, unless unless you've got the sort of communal infrastructure of a bunch of people that want to mow with you. We have done that. That is, that is fun. But I, I think that where the scythe makes a little bit more sense is, let's say you're wanting to manage some grass by grazing. You can use a scythe to cut down the outline for the Electronet fencing that you're gonna set up so it doesn't short out, so you can keep the animals in where they're supposed to be. And the animals can manage that grass for you, and then you can move it again. And so you've kind of taken a couple of acres and reduced the amount that you have to mow to half an hour in the morning, something like that. I don't know. Is that getting at what you're asking?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think again to uh, the point that we started with, it's like scything it has like this really interesting cultural relic status that people are drawn to. That's why people want to like talk about them or pretend to write books about how they use them. <laughs> but trying to find the balance of where it's appropriate versus well, we have all this equipment. Why would I want? You know, the goal isn't to go backwards. So why would I use this when it's like well, actually. I think instead of thinking of it as a replacement for like a lawnmower, it probably is a better replacement for like a weed whacker.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: You know, when you start thinking about the dangers of weed whacking, if you have young trees, you know, it's very easy to destroy a young tree by not realizing how long the string is. You know what I mean? Like it, yep. it doesn't take much to fully understand the the risks and damages that can happen when you're using something that is so mechanized and so quick versus the slow and thoughtful process of a scythe where you can be very careful and slow where you need to be in a way that mechanical equipment sometimes just doesn't have that nuance. And I think when we're talking about nuanced landscapes, or landscape management, that nuance is really kind of the devil in the details, right? Where that's where you get into trouble the most is when you don't pay attention to those little, those areas that need extra attention. I know we had talked before recording, as we're working on the substack piece about like, Oh, hey, I found this really rare plant that I would have never seen if I was just blasting through here. So I cut around it so it would go to seed, and that way there's more of it. And, you know, this is great for the local ecology, but I would have never caught that if I was, you know, just flying through with some equipment. And, and that's where, you know, that slowness, that taking the time, it really pays, like, significant dividends for the ecosystem health.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Also, uh, just in terms of uh, animal life, uh, when I'm out with a scythe all the time, I'm finding snake nests. I'm finding ground nesting birds. Um, I can usually get up to a point where I say, "Oh, there's something. There's something already here," and I can just ignore a spot. Um, a lot of times on a tractor, <laughs> you know, that might yeah. be a little bit too late. There's actually, you know, uh, the sound, the the sound of machines can kind of take us out of the space uh, a lot of the time, and so we're able to sort of enter that observation and an interaction place a little bit more carefully.
0: Yeah, so as somebody who, like I said, I hurt my back the first time I tried to use a scythe, got angry, hung it up for like a year, broke it back out, hurt my back again. And I was like, you know what? I need to like actually learn how to do this instead of being like, how hard can it be? I see videos of people just like swinging this thing back and forth in the grass and it cuts and mine isn't. So let me figure out what's going on here. And I think a lot of that plays down to the piece of equipment that you're using, the scythe itself, the size of the piece of equipment. Because again, like you, a lot of people coming into this are just like, huh, I saw one at a yard sale once. It was hanging on a barn and they didn't want it. So I got it for 25 bucks. And like with no context of, is this actually even supposed to be for grass, you know? Uh, and I think that is where you get tripped up is trying to save money, trying to just half assed your way into this this practice. So I don't know if you could talk a little bit about like what that process looks like getting into the equipment.
1: Yeah, totally. And this is a place where it's like my sort of DIY values of we can build anything, we can make anything work sort of clash with it does help to start off with something that's kind of nice. sort of, especially in North America, what you're going to come across at at a flea market or a yard sale is going to be an Anglo-American type scythe. And this is sort of a, it's got sort of a big, bendy, heavy, wooden, uh, sometimes metallic handle, and it's going to have a big stamped blade. That's got a lot of weight on it. And I've played around with them a little bit. I know that they were developed for a purpose, and I have not figured out uh, what that purpose is. <laughs> uh, I, I really recommend starting off with, you know, they'll call it a continental or a European or an Austrian type blade. These are still being manufactured. <laughs> they're, you know, they're available new, and that's sort of like going to be the 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 piece of equipment. You know, starting with the blade, a nice thin blade. Not too thin when you're first starting out because you can you can break it real quick. But having having an Austrian style blade and a snaff—that's the handle that that fits your your body—is key. But you know this isn't a tool. Um, you don't need to have. Uh, you don't, it's not a tool of strength. It's uh, it's really about technique and maintaining a sharp edge, and you know it's almost kind of a Tai Chi like uh, in your approach. So yeah, in terms of the equipment, there's a handful of different blade styles sort of on the end that nobody really needs would be uh, a hay blade or a field blade. These things are incredibly long, incredibly fragile. I think they're kind of for showboating anymore, unless you're like in the places where people are still using sides to put up hay. And that is happening globally. But a grass blade, if you've got sort of Lighter grasses and not a lot of obstructions out in the areas where you're going to be mowing, you know, if you're kind of going for a more kempt lawn, you know, you might be able to achieve that more with the grass blades. We have, there's a ditch blade, which is sort of in between a grass blade and and a bush blade. Those bush blades are pretty thick. They're really sturdy. You can cut through saplings. You can, you know, knock out brambles. Some of the thicker stalked weeds, in fact, you know, wouldn't be appropriate. Doing a lot of ragweed that's mature or pokeweed or any of that stuff with a grass blade um, could damage the blade. So moving to a ditch blade or a bush blade might be more appropriate in that sort of rougher terrain. And yeah, having having something that fits your body. So there's you know there's a few scything gear outfits that I could recommend. One of them, you're gonna pay for it, but you can get a custom snath made for your body. You have to take some measurements. It's sort of a fun date for you and a friend <laughs> to kind of <laughs> figure figure that out. Uh, and you can send them in. That's a scythe supply, and they're they're out in Perry, Maine. You know, you can send them your body geometry. They, they, they're they really great for having clear instructions on their website, and, and they'll send you a snath that fits the blade and fits you. Otherwise, there are adjustable snaths out there that are available. The brand that sort of makes some of the better blades and also makes uh, pretty good quality adjustable snaths is called Fux, F U X. Uh, it fucks fucks yeah (laughs) feels good to say it doesn't it but they're uh that um they do you know they have some that are semi-adjustable for different sizes of of person in general though if you want to make your own of course i like i'm a booster of making your own once you sort of learn how they're put together you want to have that handle interact with the blade in such a way that If you're standing right next to it and standing with the blade in front of your face, the edge of the blade at the bottom just comes up to your chin. That's a really good basic way to look at that. Um, There's a, in the document, I go through a lot of the sort of postures and we have some illustrations to sort of demonstrate, you know, the way you carry your body in it. But, you know, in general, like if you don't want to burn yourself out, if that, If you start feeling like you're mowing with a lot of force versus just sort of loosening up and and going, you know, if you're hitting that grass hard, you're having to really push the blade through, it may be time to sharpen. And so we try to keep these objects sharp objects. Typically, we'll have a wet stone in in the field that you can kind of hone the edge. And I typically hone my edge about one minute out of every 10 minutes of mowing. It seems like a lot, but it's an opportunity to catch your breath and think about your life. I think sometimes that's pretty important. Yeah. Once in a while, we've got to hammer these blades too.
0: One of the things I want to bring up, though, that you've just kind of alluded to is that it's, it's a process that is very slow and methodical. And that can be counterintuitive in the modern world of taking your time, taking frequent breaks, working slowly and thoughtfully that's just not how we do anything, at least in this country. Everything is about speed and efficiency and trying to do things in a way that reduces your downtime or maybe even like collectivizes your downtime into like one big chunk. You know, it's your lunch break, not three different breaks throughout the day or four different breaks throughout the day. And that can be really difficult for somebody new who's like, I want to do this thing and I don't want to take a break every couple of minutes. I want to go and be good at it and like clear this field. And it's like, well, no, you, part of that is engaging with the, the physicality of it with the, the process of it. And like, it's almost like an iterative process where you can read how you're doing with the landscape by how the blade is reacting and you respond accordingly. And that, Is really difficult to do because we have like I said we haven't spent any of our lives really doing that everything we do kind of just goes out into the void and that's that's about it there's no like feedback and that can be really difficult to like engage with in a way that like doesn't feel frustrating
1: yeah I think it might take a little bit of deconditioning or something I don't know if that's the right word that now now we're talking about scythe cult stuff Uh, (laughs) but yeah that's how how it happens (laughs) yeah Um, yeah, you know, and um, another thing is, so the, 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 the amount of time in a day when it's actually effective to scythe is pretty limited. It gets too hot, the grasses get too dry. I think I mentioned this before that, compared to like a, a lot of mechanical equipment, um, grass cuts better with a scythe when it's got dew on it or it's wet. The blades are just plumper and they're, they're pierced more easily by the edge. And so, you know, we have, uh, there's there's limitations to use this tool is to um, purposefully set limitations on yourself and it offers a lot of uh, space for reflection on it. So like, if, you know, if, if we were, um, if we were, you know, in sort of a, um, a non capitalistic way going through our land management practices, in a more, not only seasonal, but hour to hour sort of um, experience, like, okay, we set aside an hour or so early in the morning for scything, and then we take care of something else. And we come back to that scything the next day. It is this sort of graduated process. And it's going to, it's going to, in the long run, give us a lot more understanding you know, of, of of the the land we're stewarding, it might lead to some efficiencies in the future. I sort of said, you know, when I first started off, I thought, you know, I'm going to just kind of mow everything. This is so fun. And now I I keep my mowing pretty minimal to what needs to be mown. And it's taken me, a, you know, the better part of a decade to figure out, you know, what does and doesn't actually need that treatment you know how, how in what other ways can i steward land by either leaving it alone or uh incorporating a different management that the site is only helping me incorporate and, and and that type of thing but it does put you in a in a different rhythm for sure though there are times when it's just like i gotta bust ass and get this paddock moved there's actually a fair bit of that but um yeah. i'm hoping to sort of ease off on some of the animal agriculture that we're doing here that was also sort of maybe more of an infrastructure type um use of energy and now that we've gotten some of the results we wanted with animal production moving more towards tree crops and you want to talk about sort of a glacial scale (laughs) of affecting an uh, ecosystem positively you know get those hickories in tree crops
0: are it yeah yeah (laughs) do you think now looking back at 10 years if you never got into the scythe that uh you'd have the same fluency and understanding of the ecosystem around you?
1: You know, I, I, that's a really good question. I think it's certainly aided, aided me in that. I, I think there's other ways that, that I could find to interact with our, our local ecosystem, sure. But this has been pretty, it, being sort of a daily practice, uh, I sort of get a very deep, consistent look at it yeah I don't yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I think a person could. I don't think I could. I think that this has been a really invaluable tool for me. I sometimes have a little bit more energy than I need, and it's been a really great way to sort of channel that into observation instead of doing, doing, doing. I think I'd be fixing a lot of problems that I created with machines, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome. I think it's really you know we we pick up these habits and sometimes it's very easy to forget how much. We learn from those habits. You know, you go out in the field and you see a plant that you maybe never noticed before because it's really small, you know, be a, my little, a tiny little flower or something. You're like, huh, I would have never seen that if I was just blowing through here with a, a lawnmower or a tractor or whatever. And then you start to understand, oh, this plant has like all these ecosystem services. And you start to notice the, the, how it relates to the ecosystem around you. The flies or bees, pollinators that might be attracted to it. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole, like, butterfly effect of, like, if I hadn't seen that one little flower, I would have never noticed all these other things, right? Right. And, and that can be really important. It's, like, just that idea of slowing everything down a little bit to just take a moment and engage with, with the the environment as it is in that specific moment that I don't think we do a lot of. We, we're we so quick to, you know, you look at, like, the permaculture thing. And it's like a lot of it is, I found a site, okay, let's do a topographic map of this site, figure out the way the water is flowing down it, how do we catch most of it? And it's like, well, all right, let's see what the system looks like for a year or two. You know, even that first year can be very much a, well, that was an abnormally dry or wet year, you didn't get to see the other side of things. And just taking that slowness, I don't think we have enough respect for in this like conquest of making up for generations of being disconnected from ecosystems and their natural progression with and without humans. We're trying to, a lot of people desperately are trying to solve that problem of that relationship without actually being thoughtful about it and slow about it. And I think something like slow tools like the scythe can be really important in in really helping us learn to slow our brains down a little bit. And that that's where I think it's more valuable than anything because it does force us to relate with the landscape in a different way and have a little bit more respect for it and its scale, right? And the size of it in a way that technology can sometimes make it really easy to lose sight of. I'm managing seven acres of land where I am, for example. And it's like it's very easy to forget how big seven acres is when you can ride on a tractor through mm-hmm. it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and the scythe really puts that into perspective a lot better and like how diverse seven acres can be and how much nuance and how many different, you know, ecotypes can exist in such a little space. And, and that's where I, f- I find a lot of that beauty really exists with, with these types of tools.
1: There's also this sort of observation over time that occurs where we can see our impact years down the road Uh, If we're out in that field every day, Uh, let's say I've noticed uh, my goats just don't eat goldenrod. Nobody eats goldenrod. The cows don't eat goldenrod. The pigs don't eat goldenrod. And if if they're out in the pasture eating everything but goldenrod, I get a lot of goldenrod. If I go out and mow down that goldenrod before it goes to seed, I get less goldenrod. I want to be somewhere in between maybe. I can use that scythe no. that, that to, to just, I, I can react and respond um, to, to plant populations or learn to not react or respond to plant populations, depending on, on, on what the goals are. And so it's really interesting to see where stands of bergamot or goldenrod or ironweed or milkweed no. develop or drop. And, and, and this happens over a period of years. Yeah. And so it's sort of a sort of observation in, in detail and over time.
0: This is something I've noticed, too, um, more frequently the last year or two is like, this landscape where I am was just, it didn't have a lot of understory growth because the canopy was so dense, I cleared some of the canopy, it's still a work in progress, like everything. And um, now that there there's grasses and forbs coming up, and my sheep are working through it, it's becoming more and more obvious what they don't eat. And the really, you know, you start thinking about systems thinking, right, you've got livestock that you've got on the landscape. I've noticed here with my sheep that they don't really like native forbs the way they like native grasses, and they they'll go after most European stuff that shows up here. And it, like you you think about it from like a, a uh, you know a bigger scale, uh, and that makes a lot of sense given how they've evolved and with the landscapes where they've evolved. And then you start to pay attention to the trees that they do enjoy, and it's like, all right, well. Which trees have very similar counterparts in Europe, right? Uh, where and it's like okay, you can start to see how these things really integrate together, and you know how we can use non-native livestock as a tool for better management, especially with invasives and non-natives and so on. And like just by having that time on the landscape and paying attention and moving slowly and thoughtfully, you start to notice, huh? There's a lot of burnweed over here. Huh? There's pokeweed over here. The pokeweed's taking off very quickly because nothing is dealing with it. Basically, you know, and just like that—that that little bit of understanding of, or from taking the time to just be with the landscape as it is at different parts of the year, where those become more evident, and you can make those management decisions about, hey, I'm I'm happy there's pokeweed. I don't need a half acre of poke <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and like kind of understanding from that relationship and that slowness through the landscape. I, I think that that's where that context for um, utilizing slow tools like this is really valuable in a way that, um, again, you can, yeah, someone that's been on the landscape for a long time is going to pick it up, but especially for someone new, it's really invaluable to kind of build that kind of relationship.
1: Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's some agility to this to this thing too. I think that's really important, just in terms of we've made our observations. We don't need to apply a broad scale, quote unquote, efficient solution to the whole seven acres or the whole 280 acres or to the small, you know, little gorilla planting that 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 we have down in some woods somewhere. Like <clears throat> we can apply just a little bit of leverage, just a little bit of leverage is 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 what this tool might give us. And so no. we can make our impact small and meaningful as opposed to widespread for a smaller, a smaller issue that we're dealing with.
0: That's for sure. So Ben, I've already plugged our sub stack at the beginning of this, but for folks that want to see more of your writing, um, if you're on social media, any of those types of things, let's, uh, let's get those handles out there so people can go follow you around.
1: Yeah, yeah. My Substack, the address on that is benjaminbramble.substack.com. And I sort of uh, have sort of created that in an almanac format. So um, I'll kind of take on uh, what is the issue of the season that I'm writing about this, this week or usually every 10 days. I'm a pretty busy guy. And some of these things will be a little bit more technical. Some of those things will be a little bit more observational. Some of them are a little historical. Uh, and then also, if you want to uh, check out our Instagram page, uh, just for the uh, sake of some pretty pictures, I only try to sell beef on it maybe once every few weeks. Um, <laughs> but it, I, I try to keep it educational. Uh, and that is at Farmstead, all one word. Yeah, you can check out uh, our land trust project uh, is Dancing Rabbit Eco Village. Also worth a look. See there.
0: Yeah cool awesome Ben this has been really interesting um, it was super fun trying to put this article together I learned a ton from you so I appreciate that and uh, I, I think if anyone's enjoyed this conversation go check it out go follow you on Substack and um, you know go go get a scythe if you can and go cut some grass mow some hay
1: yeah if you're uh, in northeast Missouri and you, and you have a suitable tool and you're not sure how to use it <laughs> come on out here we got plenty of work for you
0: there you go you even got free fields to work in (laughs) uh ben thanks so much this has been a blast
1: yep no problem